You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. If you would please open your Bibles now to the book of Romans and stand, if you are able, for the reading and proclaiming of God's word. Our reading this morning is from Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. I'll be reading first in German and second in English. We do this occasionally so that we are reminded of our global faith. It's a glimpse into eternity when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathering around God's throne, worshiping him together. Ich ermahne euch nun, liebe Brüder, durch die Barmherzigkeit Gottes, dass ihr eure Leiber gebet zum Opfer, dass er lebendig, heilig, Gott wohlgefällig sei. Das sei euer vernünftiger Gottesdienst. Und stellet euch nicht dieser Welt gleich, sondern verändert euch durch Erneuerung eures Sinnes, auf das ihr prüfen mögt, was Gottes Wille ist, nämlich das Gute und Wohlgefällige und Vollkommene. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. I was listening to an interview with a pastor in Australia and he was talking about the modern missionary movement in the West where everyday Christians have really rediscovered the call to make disciples engaged in the culture that they live in. Many have been inspired by this idea of taking Christianity into the world around them to bring change through the gospel. How it's not just about bringing people to church, but about bringing the church to the people, going into the, the workplace and into the schools and into the community and into the arts to reach unreached peoples with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he noted something. And what he noted was, as good as this is, and this is an amazing vision, the church in the West has underestimated the culture's ability to shape and form us in the process. He tells a very simple story, uh, a story he heard from a woman who said, you know, I went into the pub to make the people more like Jesus, but what ended up happening is I just became more like the people in the pub. Isn't that a relatable statement? I went into this space. I went into school. I went into the academics. I went into my job. I went into the arts. I went into fill in the blanks with the hope of bringing change. And I had all this vision of how, you know, me and with the gospel, with people, people's lives are going to be transformed. But what ended up happening was it consumed me. I got swept up. I lost my passion for Christ. And I sadly ended up just kind of blending in, looking like everyone else. The question that I want us to consider today is pretty simple. 
who or what is forming you? What is actively changing your life right now? This is not a question of whether or not we are being changed. The question to consider today is what kind of change is occurring? Because according to Romans 12, at any given moment, one of two things is happening with or without your awareness to it. You are either being conformed or you're being transformed. The only thing that is not happening in your life right now is nothing. At any given moment, there are two competing powers at work among us. The world that attempts to conform us to its broken image and the Holy Spirit who's actively at work to transform us into the likeness of the risen Christ, Jesus, causing us to reflect not this world, but a world to come, the age to come, the renewed world that will be ours when Christ returns. And so as we first consider what it means to be conformed to this world, there are a lot of ways that we could describe this. In fact, the Bible tells us that the, un- the entire world is under the sway of the evil one. Paul has already told us in Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament that sin is described as this force that seeks to enslave us and to dominate us and ultimately destroy us. But what I want us to consider is how being conformed plays out, like what it looks like when it happens. And how I want to do this is by introducing you to a, a man named Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays was known as the father of public relations. When we think about modern marketing today, we probably think like Mad Men or Madison Avenue, but before Don Draper, there was Edward Bernays. And he was the nephew, maybe you don't recognize this name, but he was the nephew of someone you probably do recognize. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And what Bernays did was he pioneered the use of psychology in marketing. And building and borrowing from his uncle's work, what he did was he developed something he called the engineering of consent, the tampering of the human will. And as a result, there's probably a really good chance that when you purchase something, whether it's a car or whether it's clothes or whether it's a new phone or whether it's a piece of furniture in your house, it is not simply because you wanted to purchase that thing. It is not simply because you just autonomously chose to purchase that thing. It's because you were shaped into thinking that you need it and that you couldn't live without it. That you're not whole, that something is missing in your life if you don't have this thing. For instance, he did this with smoking in the early 20th century. Bernays saw the rise of the feminist movement in the early 1900s, but what he also noticed was that by and large, it was still socially unacceptable for women to smoke in public. And so what he did was he saw that void, he saw this opportunity, and he approached major cigarette companies like Lucky Strike, and he said, I've got an idea for you, a marketing idea. And this marketing idea he coined as the Torches of Freedom, where he formed these protests of women that gathered in New York on Easter Sunday during the Easter Sunday parade and caused women to 
protest in the middle of the streets smoking cigarettes. He, in fact, recruited celebs to show up so that it got publicity. And as a result of these acts, cigarettes became a symbol of liberation and freedom for an entire generation so that smoking was at the heart of gender equality. Cigarettes became the symbol that you were someone that was socially conscious. Smoking a cigarette became a symbol that you cared about equality. He did this with bacon as well. A company that sold bacon approached him and said, we need to sell bacon. He noticed that in the 20s, most people didn't eat breakfast. They would have orange juice or coffee for breakfast. And so what he did is he exploited the void and got a couple doctors to essentially affirm this idea that bacon is an important part of breakfast and caused bacon sales to increase so that today bacon is a staple. He says this in his book called Propaganda. You can't make this stuff up. He said this, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of the country. It's not the president. It's the marketing firm. And he said, we are governed, our minds are molded, listen to these words, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, and our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. It is they who pull the strings that control the public mind. So let me ask you again, who or what is forming you? Because as autonomous as you feel right now, someone is forming you. Someone is actively seeking to change you. The Apostle Paul would say in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. As it's been translated, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Instead, let God remold you. As Martin Luther King once said, the scriptures are really, really clear that Christians are called to a life of nonconformity. Christians are called to refuse to be manipulated, to refuse to be squeezed into the mold of this present age. But here's the problem. That is easier said than done. This is not about just me putting my foot down and saying, okay, I'm planting my flag. I am no longer going to be conformed to this world. I am saying enough is enough. Good luck. We will forever be shaped to look like this world until we're being shaped to look like another world. That's what Paul's saying here. The only way to avoid being mindlessly conformed is by being intentionally transformed. And the word here for transformed is actually only used a few times in the New Testament. And in the original language, it's where we get the word metamorphosis. It's the word used to describe Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where he's transfigured into glory. And the beautiful thing is that that description is now being attached to us as Christ was transfigured, so God desires to transfigure us. 
And the language here is so rich and meaningful. It's, it's casting this vision of a new humanity that we can belong to through faith in Jesus Christ. We are being invited, every single one of us, into lasting change that affects every fiber of our being down to our deepest core. Don't just think modifying appearances. Don't just think growing in your manners. Don't just think like a little bit better version of yourself. Think about the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. Where we, by the Spirit's work within us, experience this strange and miraculous process of death to what was. And then the resurrection of something new. Bringing about something different, something more beautiful, something more glorious than ever before, a radiant, passionate, fully alive version of you. A, a you that you could never even imagine. A you that far exceeds even your greatest goals for your life. But as we see here, that while we can simply drift into conformity, and many of us probably are, no one has to work at being conformed. You just simply let off the reins and drift. But on the other hand, we will not drift into a transformed life. We will drift into conformity. We will not drift into transformation. In fact, what Paul is laying out here is an imperative. It's a necessary instruction that cannot be ignored. It can't be disregarded. And I think for us today, we need to pay attention to this. It can't be assumed. I'm a Christian. Of course I'm being transformed. I have the Holy Spirit. Of course I'm being transformed. No one has ever had a casual, moderate, assumed relationship with the transformation that the scriptures speak of. In order to become the person that you long to be, and more importantly, in order to become the person that God has created and called you to be, we have to intentionally respond to God's grace. And we have to respond in an ongoing way that therefore, here in verse 1, is Paul saying, in light of all that God is, in light of all that I've told you about who God is and what he has done in your life, this is how you must respond. This is what you must now seek in your life. And so how do we seek to experience a transformed life? Looking at this passage, I think we need three things. We need hearts motivated by mercy. We need bodies given to God. And we need minds renewed by revelation. Let, let's look first at hearts motivated by mercy. Look with me again in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So the last uh, 11 chapters have been exploring the many dimensions of God's mercy. In fact, it's not just mercy, it's plural here. Mercies. Paul would say in chapter 9, salvation depends not on human will or exertion. Salvation does not depend on you or what you do or what you'll ever do, but it depends on God who has what? Mercy. If Paul were asked, okay, beautiful statement here, beautiful 11 chapters, sum it up in one word for me. His summary would be mercy. The gospel message that's come to us, the opportunity to repent and believe, 
justification through faith, forgiveness, joy in our sufferings, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that releases us from our sins, the resurrection of Jesus that brings new life, the the giving of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, the, the inheritance that is ours awaiting us in heaven, God's everlasting love, inclusion into God's family, all of it, Paul sums up as God's mercies to us. God is merciful, amen? And now as he pivots, and this is a really important pivot moment in Romans. The focus now is on how we respond. It's mostly just been indicatives so far, just telling us who God is, telling us how God is at work in this world, but now the instructions are coming. And as all the instructions for Christian living is coming, Paul does this really important thing. He attaches it all to God's mercy. Essentially, what he's saying is the linchpin for the Christian life is God's mercy. And when Paul says, I appeal to you, it's an appeal to the heart. This is an emotional appeal. In fact, the word here for mercies is not the typical word that we see in the New Testament for mercy. It's the word, actually, that means the depths of someone where where compassion dwells. It's the place where there's deep longings and emotions. That's Paul's appeal to the people. You know what Paul is essentially saying? What he's saying is you've got to let your heart be shaped by God's heart for you. You've got to let the, your depths be stirred and emotionally stirred by how God is deeply emotionally stirred for you. We often think about how the Bible describes what God says about us, thinks about us, but how about how God feels about us? How does God feel about us? Right, we tell our, well, we don't tell our children. I would never tell our children this. But we tell people, you know, I love you, but I don't like you right now. I would never say that. I always like you. But there's that sense, I love you, but I don't really feel good towards you. How does God feel towards us? He feels deeply toward us. He feels always and only deep love and compassion for his people. And so today, and you're not alone in this, if the answer is yes, today if you're lacking motivation, if you feel disengaged, if you feel despondent, if you feel apathetic in your, in your faith, the solution is not to focus on getting emotionally stirred for God. There are going to be countless churches that gather today that try to stir people up emotionally but leave them completely unchanged. The solution is recognizing how emotionally stirred God is for you. The solution is allowing that mercy to sink down deep into you, dwelling upon how God is moved in his depths for you, how God is full of passion for you, how God's love for you burns white hot forever. Brenny Manning, in his book, Abba's Child, He writes about this spiritual inward journey that he was really kind of forced to take, where he began to recognize all the wrong motivations that had been leading him in his life, and specifically in his ministry. Like Manning, many of us are motivated by the wrong things. 
We're often motivated by recognition. We're often motivated by the need for approval. We're often motivated, even in our Christian faith, to get God to love us, or maybe even sometimes just to get God to tolerate us. We're motivated by trying to prove ourselves. We're motivated by trying to make something of ourselves. But what he discovered is that when the gospel shapes your motivation, when the good news that we are already recognized, we're already approved, we're already loved and made worthy through faith in Jesus Christ, when that gospel sinks deep into our heart and becomes our motivation, there's liberation and there's power. Power. And he said this, the great divorce between my head and my heart endured throughout my ministry. For 18 years, I proclaimed the good news of God's passionate, unconditional love, utterly convicted in my head, but not feeling it in my heart. I never felt loved. That stands out to me. I think he, like many of us maybe today, knew that God was love and merciful, loving and merciful. He knew that these were characteristics of God. He just couldn't accept it for himself. How do we experience transformation? How do we experience a real and lasting changed life? Well, Paul tells us by receiving the good news of mercy deeper than just your thought life. Is it less than thoughts? No. Is it more? Absolutely. It's by allowing God's mercy to reach those deep down broken places where you're scared. Those deep down places where you feel wounded. Those deep down places where we often are guarded and protect ourselves. And maybe even today, we've been trying to keep God away from. It's letting mercy reach those places. It's got to get deep down into your heart. It's got to sink in. It's got to become the reason that you live. It's got to be the motivation for everything you do. And as it becomes the motivation for Christian life, it becomes also explosive power that energizes everything forward. How do we experience transformed lives? By being motivated by God's mercy. Let's look secondly. In order to experience transformation, we also need bodies given to God. We need bodies given to God. Now, because of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to make atonement for our sins. Paul is not talking about a sacrifice that makes amends with God. For the Christian, God is not at odds with you and he's waiting for you to live a sacrificial life so that he likes you and accepts you and loves you. Now, what Paul is referring to is an Old Testament practice of a burnt offering that would be brought to God as an embodiment of devotion and worship to him. This is not a guilt offering. This is an offering of gratitude. And the difference is, is that we are no longer offering a dying animal. What are we offering? Our living selves. A living sacrifice. Isn't that strange? A living sacrifice? See, the irony that we discover is that living is dying and dying is living. To truly live for God, we must fully die to ourselves. And when we fully die to ourselves is when we ironically become most alive. A living sacrifice. But notice what is being devoted to God. 
it's our bodies. It's our bodies. So let me ask you a question. What is most important to God? Not what is important to God. What is most important to God? Is it the spiritual or is it the physical? Is it your soul or is it your body? The answer that seems most Christian and like most religious is the spiritual. I feel this inclination that when forced to choose, well, I, I guess the spiritual. But it's also, what this is is a false dichotomy. And it's one that God never intended us to have to try to choose between the spiritual or the physical. We, as humans, were created in the image of God. God made our bodies, we're told, male and female, and he said that it was good, and that echo of God's voice still resounds within us today. And yet, as people that are continually shaped by our culture, we have learned through the years to treat the body as a commodity. We've learned to treat the body as something that we use and, and something that we eventually discard. We have trivialized the body. Whether we know it or not, this is an idea that we have inherited by a group from the past called the Gnostics. The Gnostics throughout the years were a group of people that were given way too much influence in culture and way too much influence in the church. And one of the basic ideas that the Gnostics believed was that the spiritual was good and the material is bad. And so to the Gnostics, the you know, humanity's fall, the, the sin that we experienced at Genesis 3, that that sin, that fall was sliding down what they called the great chain of being, where we went from being spiritual to becoming human. In their mindset, being human, having flesh, being bodies was a consequence of sin. And so because of this, their idea of salvation was that we are one day going to be freed from our material beings. We're going to be freed from our bodies, and we're going to be floating around as these disembodied spirits in heaven, and we're going to leave all the flesh and all the body and all the gross stuff, base stuff, behind. As a result of this thinking, what many began to believe is what you do with your body is not that important. It's just the body. We're going to shed that one day. We're going to leave that behind. So what we do with the body today doesn't really matter. The ironic thing is that this is completely backwards. The Bible tells us that God created the material world with physical bodies, and he said, it's good. This is good. Our physical being is not the result of the fall. Our physical being is the product of God's Good design. Bodies, senses, emotions, hungers, desires. It's all good. And when humanity fell through the sin of Adam and Eve, it's not that we became human. It's that we forfeited our humanity. That's what sin aims to do, to dehumanize us. Think about it. We ache, we toil, we use, we blame, we attack, we eventually die. Sin strips us of our humanity. And yet God does this wild, totally anti-Gnostic thing. In John chapter 1, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You hear what that's saying? Is the spiritual became physical. 
the spiritual became body. Jesus lived and he died and he rose and he ascended physically. Jesus took on our humanity in order to redeem our humanity. He offered up his body so that we could offer God our body. Look with me again in verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Think about these ideas coming together here. Body, holy, spiritual worship. You know what this means? It's so practical we may miss it. What this means is that the most spiritual things are going to be the most physical things. The most spiritual, holy thing that you can do is to dedicate your most practical, overlooked things to God. Our living, our breathing, our speaking, our sleeping, our spending, our loving. Feet that are walking in righteousness, mouths that are speaking life and declaring good news, hands that serve, arms that embrace the lonely, sex organs that are given to one's spouse. This is where spiritual worship happens. We think it happens here. God says, no, it happens all throughout life. The interesting thing is that we give God our singing on Monday but not our speech on Monday. Sorry, we give our God our singing on Sunday, but not our speech on Monday. As James would say, you bless the Lord with your tongue, and then with that same tongue, you curse men and women that are created in his image. And you wonder why you're not experiencing transformation in your life. We give God our affection, but not our finances, and we wonder why we're not experiencing transformation in our life. We commit our minds to God, but we compromise God's vision for sexuality, and we wonder why we're not experiencing transformation in our lives. Why do we struggle? Why do we struggle to experience spiritual change? It's because many of us have offered God our souls, but few of us have offered offered God our bodies. It's because we're living these divided lives, and we will forever fail to feel whole when we live divided. Paul is saying, offer it all to God. Commit it all to him in worship. Lay it all before him on the altar and hold nothing back. Nothing is too practical, too physical, too base to give to God. Amen? Amen. Let's look finally at minds renewed by revelation. In order to experience transformation, we need minds that are renewed by revelation. Let me say it this way. What you're becoming in the future is going to reflect where your mind is set today, right now. What you behold, you are going to become, for better or for worse. And so because of this, Paul says we've got to change the way that we think. Now, asking someone to change their mind is a big deal. Like, that is a cultural taboo. You don't tell people, change your mind. For many people, that feels intrusive. Like, these thoughts, what happens inside is my thought world. It's mine to do what I want with, when I want with it. Don't tell me to change my mind. For other people, it feels offensive. Like, who are you to question my thoughts? Who are you to question me and tell me that I'm wrong? We've been led to believe that changing our minds means that we're weak, that we're being oppressed, and that we lack authenticity. 
to change your mind is to sell out and to give in. But I think we forget how much our minds are already being molded by various people and institutions around us already. How our family of origin shaped us, how our friends growing up, the entertainment that we watched as kids, and now how the culture around us constantly is seeking to change us. They've all given us these mixed messages about what the good life is and who you are and what you're to become. It's all shaped how we process life and how we relate to God and others and even ourselves. And not only that, but as Paul told us in Romans chapter 1, that sin has caused us to have depraved minds. Minds that apart from the Spirit's intervention are hostile towards God. Changing your mind, I know, I know. Changing your mind feels like you're giving in. Changing your mind feels like the last piece of real estate of your life that is under your control. Especially in a season like this. Everything's been taken. Everything's been out of my control. I had nothing I can control. Why my mind? But in reality, it's the only way to truly live. And as the Bible tells us, a renewed mind results in a renewed life. What we believe about God and ourselves and the world around us is going to change our motivations. It's going to change our dreams. It's going to change our actions and our relationships. It's going to change everything. And the primary way that our minds are renewed is through the revelation of God's word. We're told in Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ, which is active and living, and it's at work within us as it dwells within us to transform us from the inside out. I was talking with a believer recently who shared their struggle to experience change. They, they, they felt like they were stuck. And so I asked them a really simple question. What's your time in the word look like? What's your biblical intake look like? What, what are your rhythms of opening up God's word. No surprise, it was non-existent. We, we want the transformation without the means of transformation. We want the renewed mind, but without the word that renews. It's God's responsibility to transform us. Don't hear me wrong. God changes our lives. But it's our responsibility to make sure that we get the renewing word deep into our heart. The, the psalmist says, I've hidden your word deep in my heart so that I may not sin against you. The Bible describes the word of God as being implanted within that when it grows, it bears much fruit in our lives. So how do we do this? Real practical. We read the word. We pray the word. We study the word. We meditate upon the word. We sing God's word. We discuss God's word. This is your last day to sign up for a Bible study, by the way. We apply God's word. We obey God's word. And I want to conclu uh, conclude with this. I want us to think about it this way. I want us to think, how does this word get in here and then change everything in life? Because that is strange, and that is miraculous. In Genesis 1, we're told that God created our world and everything in it with his what? Go ahead. 
You should know your word. It's his word. God said, let there be light. And there's light. God speaks creation into existence, and out of nothing, there's life. And likewise, when God speaks, and if you're here today saying, well, I haven't heard God's voice. Yes, you have. God's word is God's voice to you. And as we get God's word into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives, in the same way that God spoke creation into being, God by his spirit speaks our recreation into being. God says, you are new. You are holy. You are beloved. You are being transformed. And the spirit of God through the word of God brings renewal and transformation in our lives. So today what I want to do is I simply want to pray that God would open us to his word and awaken us to his living, active word in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I admit.